She screams, and then Kong X Machina comes and saves her. The first original T-Rex rushes back in to bite the hand that holds Anne as Kong has scooped her up, but Kong takes the attack on the arm. He's protecting her, uh, and he goes to climb and leave, but there's a third T-Rex. <laughs> I did lost it a little bit of the third T-Rex. I'm like, okay, the second one, amazing fake out. The third one, now we're getting, now we've gone too far. <laughs> I, per- I don't think they went far enough. I think they should have, you know, done gone a little further. Maybe six, ten T-Rexes. I was going to say, like, how many T-Rexes do you think would have been the upper limit on how many T-Rexes they could have had in this scene? Because T-Rexes, I'm pretty sure, were solitary hunters, from my understanding of paleontology. So already we're introducing a whole new element to the T-Rex hierarchy. They must really be hungry. They must really need some food to be trying to get this one, One like, of them was eating the Komodo meal. dragon. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it, yeah, it's eating the dragon. It it's this massive meal. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Movie Struck, a podcast about movies and the people who watch them. I'm your host, Sophia Ricciardi, and I'm joined today by Jake from Man Carrying Thing. Jake, welcome to the show. Hello, happy to be here. Excited to have you on today. I do have to ask you the question that I ask every guest at the top of the show. Um, why did we watch King Kong, the 2005 Peter Jackson movie, not <laughs> the throwback? Because it is amazing. It is, I think, it. well, it's one of my favorite movies. It's sentimental to me. But I also think it's like a great relic from a lost era of Hollywood that was just like, Peter Jackson getting to do this insane dream mm-hmm. project, three hours long. It's weird. It's a weird movie. It's uneven, but I I love all of the weird aspects to it. So I'm excited to talk about it. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, was, uh, I had not seen this before, so this was a new one for me. Uh, and oh, going into wow. it, I was a little bit intimidated. I saw the runtime. I'm like, oh, no, how do you get three <laughs> hours out of King Kong? Uh, <laughs> the answer is a lot of ravine-based chases, but I think <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh-huh. we'll, we'll a lot cover of off on a couple sequences. of those. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Did you watch, oh, did you watch the extended cut? Uh, I did, yes. Okay, okay. Good. Well, that's the one I watched, too, because I'm pretty sure a really good bug sequence is not in the theatrical cut mm, yeah um, so that's why i recommend the extended cut <laughs> kind of a good rule for peter jackson is watch the extended cut <laughs> i yeah yeah i think so i think so jumping into this movie open on a monkey chattering not an ape my one um college uh anthropology class taught me one thing monkeys and apes different Different parts of that evolutionary line, but uh, they're ch- it's chattering in the world's saddest zoo as we present uh, jaunty 1920s music kicks in and a bunch of down-on-their-luck people and animals in New York City go about life uh, during the Great Depression. Stuff is rough for many. Uh, luckily, showbiz also exists, so a few people who can afford theater are th- enjoying various performances as we cross-cut between scenes of sadness and the comedic performances on stage including uh one blonde actress naomi watts who is seems to be the only hopeful one that things will pick up uh backstage after her show she's talking to her fellow actors and seems to be holding on to just a little a little glimmer of of hope 
She's fretting over one of her older co-workers, one of the older actors. The day lets out and they go about their business. The next morning they arrive and the theater has been shut down and all the actors are kicked out and out of a job. And the blonde is told by her co-worker that he's leaving for Chicago uh, and he gives her the advice of thinking for herself and trying out for a part that she's been gunning for. So she goes and ambushes a Mr. Weston on the street trying to talk in person about her resume and demand an audition. And when that doesn't work, he just suggests that she go to the address of a theater that he hands her and gives her the name Kenny K. And she's like, maybe you can get some, he's like, maybe you can get some work and food here, you know? Uh, and that's sort of our I just love how this sounds like this sounds like nothing like what you'd expect a King no. Kong movie there's like five <laughs> movies in this movie and the whole first mm-hmm. act of the movie is just like this 1930s Hollywood story about this actress trying to find work it's like I love like well I love all the period stuff I think it's really fun mm-hmm. and I love like yeah. the vaudeville section you know um, there's just so many like there's a lot of love put into it of like trying to show this era. And I just love that. Um, but yeah, what did, what did you expect? Because I'm really curious because you've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. I grew up watching this movie. I watched this way more than I watched Lord of the Rings. This was like my Peter Jackson movie. Um, nice. You know, I don't know what that says about me growing up and my, <laughs> my problems, probably a lot. But um, yeah. So like, what did you think of like the beginning of this movie? Was it too much? Did you, did you get into the flow of it? Yeah, you know, I think I was always waiting. In my in my mind, this is, wasn't a period piece, so there was part of me that's like, oh, so when are they going to flash forward inevitably to something else happening? But th- instead, they stay oh. in the period, which I think is a much better choice than whatever was happening in the back of my brain. But I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop, and I think that that mm-hmm. kind of carried me through what is a fair bit of setup that won't necessarily pay dividends. Like, it's all to the greater story. Um but it, it does tend to, like you said, it's like five movies in one. This is just kind of the old Hollywood section of this movie, uh, mm-hmm. which as a, a movie geek did speak to me a little bit. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I love this kind of this vaudeville era, the, the big producer bigwigs and whatnot. Um, I was I was like, so when are we going to say the words Skull Island or King Kong? What's coming? <laughs> Any minute now? Oh, and I'm when sure. they do, it's like a moment. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Um, but it's like not until like hour and a half into the movie when they do, but uh, no, yeah. um, much, much sooner than Skull Island. We do meet Jack Black, who is in this movie. <laughs> so good. Uh, he is so absolutely good fantastic. Just a, mm. a breakout performance for frequent favorite part of a movie. Jack Black. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of it. He's doing like this Orson Welles thing. That's just mm-hmm. perfect. And I think like that was really inspired casting to have him in this movie. And some people have issues with it, but I, th- I thought he did a good job with it. Yeah, he's playing this very... Uh, at first, it comes across as, across as very dedicated to his craft. And by the end of the film, that might be more dedicated to profit. But either way, mm-hmm. he is very passionate about this film that he is presenting to a group of producers. Uh, all of this B-roll footage of the jungle and all of these producers are annoyed that uh, Carl Benham, the Jack Black character, Carl, has kind of lingered on these costly, useless shots. He's like, we can't sell this. The people won't want to see this. Where are the steamy romantic scenes that you promised and we're not you're not delivering on? Uh, and it's at this point that Jack Black reveals a map that he's come into possession of that leads to an island that's never before been explored. And that's where he wants to continue shooting his picture, not on the much more cost efficient backlot, but on location on this yet undiscovered island. 
he's in it for the art he wants to you know show people something they've never seen uh but the investors oh, yeah. just want boobies so it's not going to go well for him <laughs> they do i mean that's it's so good like the setup of well uh, i love the like comedy and like serious tone that's like mm-hmm. trying to be balanced here sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but yeah. this like um oh we're talking about this serious mysterious map and it's like so sincere you know Mm -hmm. and then it's also this like parody of like hollywood and i i wonder if peter jackson was venting a lot of his own frustrations about the movie (laughs) system i mean i'm sure there's a few points i'm like i don't know how like self-inserty carl is getting here in this opening section for peter jackson of like and later in the movie that's why honestly watching it lately this time i watched it two nights ago and i was Mm -hmm. like this is way like darker than i remember or or than I give it credit for sometimes, you know, especially the Peter Jackson, Carl Denham character. Like Mm -hmm. he goes down such a dark path and well, anyways, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Of course. Uh, He's dismissed for the moment. uh, And as the investors decide that they're going to pull the plug on his production, he rushes off to the ship that he has chartered to uh, go finish filming after all, trying to just get out before they can really stop him. He's got his assistant Preston with him. Uh, they've got all the reels in their hand. I love this. I <laughs> went to film school and we used to have to carry the reels around too. And it's just that fun little moment of mm-hmm. like, you've got this perilous stack of flat discs and you're just running through the streets of New York. I thought that was a great comedic moment. Um, mm. They plan logistics in a cab. Uh, Carl learns that Maureen, his actress, has pulled out and they need a girl who, above all else, will fit into her size four costumes more than anything else, really, for this production to continue right now. So Carl goes to a uh, adults-only theater and spots Annie standing, staring in the reflection of the door at the theater. Unlike all of the girls in the posters outside, she's just got that kind of it quality and also looks like maybe she would fit into a size four. Uh, And so as she tears up the paper that Weston had given her and walks off after considering going into um, the theater and steals an apple from a booth, she's nearly caught, but Carl covers for her and this is his in. They go to dinner. Carl asks her if she's a size four and before she can run out, he goes on to further explain that he's a movie producer and he wants her in his picture. He sort of runs her through the plot. A mysterious man meets a beautiful woman on a boat in the Far East, and their fateful meeting changes everything, which is a... (laughs) I guess you could argue that the fateful meeting is a thing that will happen. It just might not be between man and woman in the Far East. Yeah, yeah. I love how all of these, like, they're like little set pieces or little sequences going from Carl running with the film reels to Mm -hmm. finding... And, you know, all of these little things. It's really, like... It's engaging, like it. It's long, like, but I do feel like it's really well paced in terms mm-hmm. of like going from one thing to the next, and you're really like you kind of forget you're watching a King Kong movie. Uh, it's really cool, I think. Yeah, I think this opening section is probably some of the best pacing in the movie, just because, like you're saying, they're introducing all these different characters and elements, and they're cutting between them pretty frequently. But that is a really great way to just keep you immediately engaged. Mm-hmm. I like the middle third of this movie, which we'll get to in just a minute. But uh, I do think that that's the part where it did drag a little bit for me at times. I'm like, okay, maybe like the third ravine we've hit. I'm, we, we, we're good now. We can keep going. But this <laughs> part, like you said, is really, really engaging and well-paced. Uh, and I, I love getting to know everyone's deal so quickly. Um, you know, there's still room to explore. But you kind of get like Anne's ingenue vibe and you get Carl's sort of 
all for the film attitude and everything you really need to know to have these almost like stock characters get to then be shuffled right into the story and be explored. Exactly. And I think that's the key is the stock character element Mm -hmm. where it really is like these are you could say like, well, they're cliches, but it's like this kind of 1930s, like old style filmmaking, even the music kind of cues Mm -hmm. you in this kind of like old timey film score, everything's very melodic and everything. And then, you know, you see these like stock characters, and then you follow them and they become a little more complex. And then I think that's what's so devastating about the movies. Like it really is like super like it clearly loves the original very much, mm-hmm. but it's also like really bitter. And it, and it, it really has a, like some really um, messed up things in it. So mm-hmm. as he explains the plot of the movie to her, kind of the, the log line, as it were, she fills in the more emotional side, giving a little bit of a hint of her performing chops, talking about how love is doomed and good things never last. Uh Anne doesn't think that she's a particularly sad performer and goes to turn down the part, but Carl continues and name drops Driscoll as the screenwriter, uh, Jack Driscoll, which is a playwright that Annie is a fan of, was previously reading in an earlier shot, and this gets her attention, so she decides to go with Carl to the shoot. They arrive at the ship, which is a little small and rough around the edges and definitely spookily lit, but it is actively being loaded up with everything you could need for a film production gone rogue. Preston, Carl's assistant, tells him that the studio has sent the cops. Uh, So Carl's like, we got to leave right now. Captain, set sail. But the captain is waiting on the manifest. Uh, He's pointed towards Anne as the two introduce themselves uh, as a reason that perhaps he should ship off right away. And Carl, noticing this weird chemistry, uh, sends Preston over to show Anne to her cabin and the captain agrees to set sail. Uh, I thought that maybe that was going to cue up some sort of like romantic subplot. And I'm happy that that didn't really ever turn into anything. (laughs) Mm-hmm. personally yeah. he, the captain has some of the strangest energy i think of any of the performers <laughs> in this movie i could not He's get got a read the, on this the, man the stoic <laughs> mysterious frightening energy yeah, yeah i mean i i love also when uh and it goes is this the moving picture ship and then he's like, uh, no, it's actually this one over here. And it's that, it's mm-hmm. that crappy boat. But, um, but yeah, just like the kind of, I mean, you get these like, I don't know how to call it, except very like earnest and big moments that are played mm-hmm. with like this sweeping music when Anne steps onto the boat and it's like fate, you know, and it's like, how do we. I guess in that way, it is like Lord of the Rings in terms of just like these fateful moments and these big epic moments. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of funny that, you know, this kind of sincerity is being done with these just like scrappy filmmakers and and all of that. Um, uh, But yeah, go on, go on. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we're going to kind of just meet another round of players in this movie over the next like 10 minutes or so. So Uh, many, so many people. Carl runs into Driscoll on board, who hands him an incredibly thin script. He's written a beginning, but no middle and end. He thought he'd have more time. Driscoll goes to leave to go to one of his play's openings, but Carl notices the ship is casting off just as the second, so he delays uh, by writing a series of progressively just a little wrong checks uh, until Driscoll, finally having taken his sweet time to get out, uh, is fed up and runs into even more delays in the form of the lead actor of this film, Baxter, and Preston again in the hallway, getting stuck along with them and their luggage. And finally, as he reaches the deck, watches the ship set off its left port with him on it. 
Carl tells Jack that there's no money in theater as the cops also pull up on the dock just a moment too late. Uh, and Driscoll's like, no, I love the theater. Uh, but, <laughs> but Carl tells him, no, you don't, because if you did, you would have jumped, which is a great line. <laughs> He's such a shitty friend. He is the He's worst the, friend. The worst. <laughs> awful, awful man to the people uh. around him. Driscoll is shown to his accommodations, which, since he's sort of an unplanned passenger, is down in the cargo hold where there are cages and cages for many exotic animals that the ship typically transports. Um, the captain, again, energy impossible to read. <laughs> like Captain Ahab, then also sort of like a noble figure all at once. It's a really weird mix this guy's given And us. nothing really comes of it. It's just like, oh. that's just how he is. <laughs> yeah, he's just a little off-putting and that's okay. The captain apologizes for not offering him a proper cabin, and as he shuffles about, Driscoll accidentally uncovers Chekhov's chloroform, a series of bottles that the crew uses to knock out any of the exotic animals that they're transporting. Baxter is putting up posters of himself in his cabin. We don't learn too much about him for a while, other than he's um, very full of himself and very, like, prideful, and I think that this is a great way of just, like, okay, we immediately see that, and now we're done. <laughs> now we don't have to dwell on it for too much longer. And that's good. And they should have done that with more of the other characters. Yeah. <laughs> they don't There's need a scene to see where they everything. just like name drop a bunch of them all at once. I'm like, great. Okay. That's all I need to know about these guys. Yeah. 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 I mean, especially we'll get to one in particular that I have an issue with. But mm-hmm. yeah. Driscoll is writing in a cage, which is admittedly a pretty funny looking shot uh, when he's given dinner, a chef's specialty of lamb's brains and walnut sauce. Jimmy, the kid who delivered it, is stopped by Mr. Hayes on his way out, who is another one of the crewmen, uh, and retrieves the pickpocketed pen that Jimmy had just taken from Driscoll and apologizes for the young lad's behavior, explaining that Jimmy doesn't mean any harm. Uh, He's just sort of a wild kid who was found stowed away years ago, and at times he's wilder than all the animals in here. Um, (laughs) Hayes and Jimmy have a relationship that... uh, it's, kind of, it's like a father-son thing, older brother, younger brother. Um, Jimmy looks up to Hayes a lot. Hayes is always looking out for Jimmy. Very endearing. I, this is one of the relationships I think maybe left the most to be desired in terms of like how much I cared about them later in the movie. <laughs> like, oh, it's... you're setting up this like kind of neat little crew dynamic. And then they're just the most anticlimactic two characters in the entire film. Oh, oh my God. I thought I was for sure Jimmy was going to show up in New York at yes, the end. Yes, yes. I kept waiting. And do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything. Yeah. But it's just like the whole time, their whole relationship is just him going, Jimmy, you don't understand. You don't understand the world, Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy, listen to Jimmy. me. You're just a kid. You're just a kid reading Heart of Darkness thematically <laughs> yeah. on this boat. I, I don't know why they put Heart of... I mean, oh, so what hard. was... It was a bad parallel. <laughs> it was just a bad parallel. Oh, man. Anne is practicing meeting Driscoll the way one would run lines. She's like, oh, my God, big fan of your work, et cetera, et cetera. Practicing seeming composed and smart and all those the good things. Uh, this is then when we meet a bunch of other crew members and or film crew members. Uh, the sound guy is my favorite as an, a big audio nerd. He's introduced by pointing out all of the obvious to me audio issues with recording on a moving steamship. He's like, well, there's the sound of the boat, then there's the sound of the ocean, then there's the sound of the entire crew running around. Uh, But all of this is pretty much brushed off by Carl. And then pops in and is introduced to the crew. This is where we get a nice little rundown. There's Herb, the cameraman. Lumpy, the cook, who is also uh, Andy Serkis, who is the mocap for King Kong. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And Mike, the sound recordist. And, of course, 
Driscoll. She goes to introduce herself and does her whole spiel accidentally to Mike instead of Driscoll. Uh, a lot of the confusion coming from the way that she describes his work as the voice of the people. Uh, and immediately she has to put her foot in her mouth uh, as the two actually meet as she had sort of slipped into insulting the vision of Driscoll she thought she was going to have of him being this erudite, you know, little hoity-toity writer man. Oops, not the best introduction. <laughs> I feel like they did a good job, though. I feel like they did a pretty yeah. good job with their meet-cute and their relationship because I feel like that could have been so, like, mm-hmm. bad. It could have been really bad, but I feel like they had some good chemistry, at least. Yeah, you know, I think Naomi Watts and Adrian Brody's, like, chemistry is good enough on screen that even though they don't have a ton, like, they don't spend too, too long on their relationship, which I think was the right call, because there's a lot of other things going on in this movie that were much more interesting than, like, Boy Meets Girl. But I think the scene is a great setup to, oh, maybe there's a little bit of chemistry between these guys. Maybe there's a little something going on we should keep our eye on. Uh, And you get a little bit of that uh, contentious relationship uh, for for just a, a brief moment. It doesn't stick around too long. I actually, I think that it honestly, like, that whole part on the ship, they're, like, building their romance. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that, for me, that's kind of the slowest part of the movie. Yeah. Because the whole beginning of the movie is just, like, set piece, set piece. And then, like, we're running from the cops. We got to get our film. We got to get on the ship. We got to do that. And then they're on the ship. And it's like, all right, well, let's have a little bit of romance and hang out, you know. So that's, yeah, I think that part's a little slow. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Baxter returns to his room to find all of his posters have been doodled on, and this causes him to consider growing some facial hair. Again, Baxter's mostly in the background, pretty funny moments here and there to just be like, this is this guy. Carl and Driscoll are workshopping the script in the cell writing room. They're talking about a scene where the first mate dies, and then as the woman, uh, in this case played by Anne, is looking away, she sees the island for the first time. And this is the big reveal Uh, to Driscoll that they are filming on a yet undiscovered island and not in Singapore, as has been told to everyone else in the crew. Carl tells him the island in question is Skull Island, and it's as yet undiscovered. This is an appropriately dramatic revelation. Mm. talking about the map there's some nice dramatic musical cues what's that what's that what's that effect they do like it's so i've never seen that effect used so much in a movie like the slow motion but it's super choppy yeah i don't know Um, what that is it's not quite rotoscoping it's like it does produces a similar effect in live action it it looks weird. It's very unsettling, but yeah. Yeah. It's more of like a horror movie thing. I feel like Peter Jackson's leaning on his horror movie uh, <laughs> origins here a lot. Yeah. Peter Jackson loves trying out a little piece of technology. He loves doing something funky with the perspective. So I'm not too surprised to see him pull that one out. Jimmy is also listening into this conversation. Uh, the crew, as of yet, did not know that they were going to Skull Island. And now they have their little informant. Filming begins on the ship. This is when Jimmy says something to Hayes and the crew becomes fully aware of what's going on. Baxter and Driscoll are sort of at odds over the ship, which causes Driscoll and Anne to like bond a little bit over, haha, isn't Baxter such a, a foolhardy buffoon and whatnot? Provide some words of encouragement to each other. Filming continues, Anne is prompted to cry and eventually spotting just Driscoll behind her. This ruins the take as she begins to smile. Their relationship has turned around. Uh, as you said, this part went on for longer than I, I think it really should have. Uh, I think we kind of yeah. got the gist of it after the first interaction between the two of them. And then by the third one, I'm like, eh, move it along or move it along. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, what is this movie about again? Like you really, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably like an hour at least at this point, yeah. you know, into the movie. 
the movie is almost perfectly segmented into like the first hour is New York in the boat, and then the middle hour mm. is Skull Island, and then the final hour is like New York after the you know events of is it really an hour the final hour is really it's it's a little under an hour like i think it's like somewhere in 55 minutes but it's it's almost perfectly thirded divided it always felt so fast to me at the end it always felt like (laughs) oh the last new york sequence must be 20 minutes but it just has a good pace compared to the middle yeah i do feel like the first like hour did go by pretty well paced and then the middle hour felt like it was four times the length of anything else in the movie and the last hour flew by so it does sort of yeah that that sort of like hill shape to the movie carl begins to direct the captain to sail outside of shipping lanes but the captain insists that nothing is out there despite this they sail off the known map um later preston and carl are confronted by jimmy hayes and lumpy they all know they're not going to singapore and carl declares out loud that they are going to skull island lumpy and hayes are like this is a bad idea but uh uh, you know, there's there's so much sailor talk about this place. Uh, we picked up a castaway that told a tale of an island covered in fog with a massive wall surrounding it to keep a beast in. And Carl brushes this tall tale off, uh, though Hayes leaves him with the cryptic, if you go ashore, you won't come back warning, which is not proven true for uh, almost anyone in that room except for Hayes and Lumpy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Carl man. and Preston both make it back off the ice. Spoilers if you don't want to listen to the rest of the podcast. Carl and Lumpy right, make, yeah. are to make it off that island. <laughs> they sail on, fear and filming in equal parts. Driscoll falling for Anne, Anne falling for Driscoll. The Captain and Hayes growing concerned about the nothing around them. Uh, we get the most important romantic scene before Driscoll and Anne as he tells her that he's written a comedy for her. And when she asks why, he says it's in the subtext and they kiss. And these are lines that will echo in his mind somberly later on. Um. And I love the music (laughs) in that scene because it's like they're finally kissing and it's really ominous. It's (laughs) It's it's like, what the? Yeah, it's like, okay, this is weird, you know, considering the tone we set for the relationship. There's like a tonal shift after they have that meeting with uh, Hayes and Lumpy and Carl and Preston where they yeah. kind of are like, we can't do, if we go here, we can't go back. And there's just like a moment of, and now everything outside is going to be dark and gloomy and the music is going to get a little spookier. And we've definitely entered the problems are coming portion of the film as opposed to character setup. Uh, turn turn that horror dial up a little bit. <laughs> The crew starts to receive a Morse code message, and the captain, reading it, changes course and confronts Carl. It was a warrant for his arrest, and the captain has been ordered to divert to Rangoon. Carl begs for just one more week, but the captain just wants him off his ship, and Carl bemoans his fate to Driscoll. As they try to sail away, the compass starts to go all wacky, and when they try to navigate by the stars, there are no stars. How will they find their way? Um, As he's examining the map, Driscoll points out something to carl uh it's not a coffee stain it's a skull looking ink blot and it's definitely intentional carl then immediately loses the map to the wind as the ship sails into fog uh the map no longer important to navigating (laughs) the exiting or entering of skull island or the rest of this movie (laughs) no no they are on the island in in a way already (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's trying to see what's up, but they're not seeing much of anything on account of all the fog. The captain reduces speed and proceeds with caution, uh, though Hayes would rather they stop the ship. And they begin to hit shallower and shallower water, indicating that there must be something ahead. They douse the lights, and Jimmy begins to spot the wall through the fog. 
The captain rapidly stops the engines and the boat narrowly avoids smashing into the rocks, instead doing a bit of a little tap that sends everybody uh, flying to either side of the ship. They attempt to navigate the rocky wall area, but the waves are turning them all around and through the rocks, making occasional impacts that sound everyone rocketing. And after one such impact, they hear a ominous sound, almost roar-like, and the ship stops, beached against a rock with a clear view of the island. The boat is uh, damaged, but being fixed quickly, uh, and it's really, really stuck on this rock, but there's no imminent danger of sinking. Um, meanwhile, now in daylight, Carl is filming on a rowboat, heading off to the island with all of our important film crew-related characters. They're off to shoot some movies. <laughs> I love how they skipped over that conversation that Carl yeah. was like, hey, let's get off of our stranded ship, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They're just like, yeah, we'll go, we'll go. Yeah, he's still getting what he wanted all along, which is to go to this unexplored island and make his auteur film, bring something new back to the people. The captain is determined to leave ASAP, Carl and co, or no. So as the rowboat makes shore, uh, our crew walks through caves lined with human skulls uh, with a deep, deep sense of dread. Back on the boat, Jimmy asks why... uh, (laughs) This is where we get a lot more Heart of Darkness content in this movie. As, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Jimmy asks Hayes, who I guess has also read the book at some point, why Marlo, the character in the book, kept going up the river even though he knew, you know, danger was ahead and there were things that were out for him. And Hayes explains he has to go because he had to defeat the things that made him afraid. And then they extensively quote from Heart of Darkness while Carl and company are hiking through <laughs> a good a good couple minutes. They reach a big gate of sorts and a bunch of ruined settlements. Finally, like the part of the Heart of Darkness quote that I think was the most important to the film, Jimmy asks Hayes if it's an adventure story and it's not, which is kind of telling the audience metatextually like, oh, do you think that this is an adventure story? Because it's not. Don't expect that everything is going to be just fine or just having a fun little jaunt. Like this Skull Island is a comedic name in some ways, but it's pretty on the nose for what you can expect i mean you know i mean it's true like this is a pretty dark story in terms of Mm -hmm. like what happens on the island it's not all um yeah it becomes like a horror movie a little bit in this section yeah they get into a bit of like survival horror almost uh after this next scene they're walking through these deserted ruins, seemingly lost in the many, many bodies littered around when they encounter an alive little girl who spookily raises an arm. And Carl, despite Anne's feeling that they should turn around and go back, tries to offer the little girl chocolate, which is the most generous way I can describe trying to shove half of an eaten chocolate bar into her hand. Um, but she, clearly not into it, bites him and runs into a hut with her grandmama. Uh, it is... Then that they see that there are actually many, many people who are alive and living in this area and uh, are all watching and staring at them. Carl declares them all harmless. And then I thought it was Preston who was promptly stabbed in the back with the spear, but he's fine in the next scene. So I think maybe I just was confusing one miscellaneous background white man for another. It's pretty easy to do that. (laughs) (laughs) This is the portion of the movie where the amount of crew members is rapidly fluctuating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, <laughs> sometimes there's like a hundred crew members yeah. just getting brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do a pretty good job of like anyone who's been introduced will likely at least get like an on-camera death, so you'll see what specifically on this island got them. But there are definitely a, a number of Wilhelm screams mixed in there that are just a mm. guy got got. <laughs> we're, we're down another man. Oh yeah. 
and screams, big roar, and then they're all surrounded and captured or killed by the native islanders. Anne is apparently the focus of this sort of attack as one old lady talks at her in their native language and sort of is deeply unsettling to Anne. Carl is about to be killed when the captain arrives and with the power of one single gun sends the uh, natives running, leaving Driscoll, Anne, and Carl alive. RIP to Mike the sound guy who did not make it out of this scene. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, this is like clearly like the most dated part of the whole movie with Mm -hmm. like how Peter Jackson is treating the natives on this island with the same empathy and nuance as the orcs in Lord of the Rings. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like... It's very unfortunate and definitely one of the worst parts of the movie, I think. Yeah, it's, you know, there's no culture that's a monolith. And this is a very, like, backwards way of presenting native islanders of any kind. They did mostly cast, like, Polynesian actors and stuff. But then there's also some uh, black to gray body paint that's been applied, which is also problematic in its own way. So if, if any part of this movie is has aged poorly this like 20 minute sequence is it yeah absolutely also considering you know the original movie had the same or not Mm -hmm. the same problems i mean but problems with that too you know so it's it's like it doesn't really know how to deal with that legacy that the original Mm -hmm. movie had and it's like doesn't even want to address it at all so it's no yeah 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 it almost feels like in not addressing it it has sort of just continued the trend of yeah you know building on that legacy in a way that doesn't acknowledge it in any way and therefore doesn't really rectify like we know better (laughs) we can do better um but yeah yeah that's just sort of the warning for this part of the movie um they don't go too deep into anything with any particular culture like i don't think they try to draw any particular associations between real world cultures and this fictional island but obviously it is uh, drawing on a lot of stereotypes that are themselves problematic Um, Yeah, it doesn't come across as, like, intentionally malicious, like, but, mm -hmm. like, so tone deaf, like, unbelievably tone deaf. Yeah, but, uh, speaking of tone deaf, back on the boat, the crew is doing everything they can to lighten the load, throwing literally anything they can overboard, uh, and Carl, who has not once, uh, listened to a good piece of advice in his life, is determined to finish the film, uh, he's like, we gotta do it for Mike, for, like, giving his family all the proceeds that we make from it, from selling these tickets for, like, five cents a ticket so the whole world can see it. Note this speech. It will be repeated later. (laughs) So good. So good. I love that. Absolutely. This is, like, Jack Black's performance as Carl is just, like, the most convincing part of this movie for me. I think he does a really Mm. fantastic job of just getting into the kind of, you said it earlier, like, Orson Welles-y completely dedicated to the craft to the point of like being blind to the reality of their situation um guy uh in the night Anne hears the old woman's voice in her head as the natives sneak aboard the ship while they're preparing to break away from the rocks driscoll as he just comes to after having gotten a real nasty knock on the back of the head in their last encounter spots one of the islanders skull necklaces and immediately becomes worried for Anne rushing to her cabin unfortunately he is too late as Anne is not in her cabin and is in fact gone at this moment the boat is free of the rocks and starts to set off uh, as Anne is carried ashore by the islanders all of the islanders are chanting kong as Anne is carried to the old woman 
Meanwhile, the men of the boat heading ashore, uh, all hands, including Carl and his production equipment, to go on a rescue mission to save Anne. The captain in his uh, boat has a truly ludicrous amount of guns stored under seats in where you would expect like life preservers to be. <laughs> the man's got priorities. Uh, unreadable, unreadable priorities, but priorities nonetheless. Yeah. The islanders tie Anne up at the kind of like altar gate part of their city uh, and then light up that altar with fire and magma and all sorts of fun little special effects. Uh, the leaves rustle as their ceremony has attracted attention. Um, Anne is hanging by her arms over the jungle, which ouch before she's lowered onto a platform over the edge outside the wall and the drums all stop. Uh, and as she watches from the jungle, branches break, uh, and she screams as the shadowy form of a massive ape emerges. The men, meanwhile, go in firing and look for Anne, who is currently being picked up behind the wall by King Kong. Uh, they rush for the wall and the gate, but it's too late as Kong has Anne in his hand and is heading on out of there. Not before making, like, King Kong and, uh... Carl make like symbolic eye contact. I don't oh know how to describe yes. this moment. Um, it's it's intense. It's like he yeah. looks him in the eye, and it's like I, I think it's the first moment where Carl's like, "I need to yeah. go inside this island. I need to go, you know, see this King Kong." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he'll kind of hide what he is seeing exactly from the rest of the crew when they ask like oh, what was it he's like oh, he doesn't say anything he doesn't, he doesn't give any details like oh no no if everyone knows there's a giant ape running around here with Anne maybe they won't go into the forest with me which would have been yeah. safer for all of them <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> the crew splits up into an away team and to find Anne and some crew to stay with the ship Carl, of course, on the away crew, brings his film equipment, and the away team has just 24 hours before the captain is going to haul anchor and get on out of there. So they're off into the jungle to find Anne. And meanwhile, is being carried by Kong through the jungle, which is a very disorienting experience, and another instance of them using that kind of camera effect of, like, going in and out, almost like pulling focus and zoom at the same time, and it's just very... Mm -hmm. It was a little disorienting to watch, even on, like, a smaller screen. I can't imagine sitting in a theater that this would have been kind to everyone's eyes but uh, it definitely gives you the yeah. sense of being thrown around by a giant ape so like oh yeah it effect. really makes you yeah. feel like you are being tossed around by king kong while he mm -hmm. fights giant dinosaurs <laughs> uh kong is shaking her a bit more than she really can stand and as she he does she sees all the uh skeletons wearing the same necklace that has been placed on her uh-oh, Anne. She uses said necklace to smack Kong's hand and is promptly dropped and attempts to run away. And the away team, of course, can hear her screams and pursuit begins in earnest. This is sort of the status quo for like the next 30 minutes of movie is Anne is running from King Kong and the away team is trying to find Anne and everyone is just going to be in some state of running from something to someone for 30 minutes to an hour there's a little bit of a yeah. status quo change midway through um but it, it's pretty well and it's also building the relationship between her and kong yeah and like, i think those are the best parts of the movie that just like those moments where they get to just interact mm -hmm. yeah they do a pretty good job of like i get the slow build for that relationship um compared to 
they almost spend the same amount of time on her and Kong's like bond than they do Driscoll and Anne's bond. Like to the point where I think Driscoll and Anne almost have less screen time together than Kong, <laughs> Kong and Anne do. As as they should, like as as they should, and I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we'll get into this later, but mm-hmm. the kind of like handling the dynamics of like what even is their relationship, you know, mm-hmm. and like how do you express that on film? It's it's very different, and like I mean. Of course, when you watch the original movie, it's very much like Kong is like she's not happy. Like she mm-hmm. she doesn't want to be near Kong. Like it's it's a completely different thing. Yeah, Driscoll and company find the boneyard of all the necklaces and whatnot, but there's no Anne in sight. But luckily, there is a convenient trail of destruction to follow, so they head on after that. Hayes also spots Jimmy in the away team, even though he's not supposed to be there, and begrudgingly lets him carry a gun. Another example of Hayes and Jimmy being like, kid, you don't know anything about the world, and you're not ready to fire that (laughs) weapon. You don't have training. Uh, And Jimmy just getting to do things anyway, because there's really no conflict around Jimmy's participation in any of this. Yeah, like, uh, there's dinosaurs here. Like, maybe it's a good idea, just in case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They uh, trudge through the jungle, pausing for a five-minute break in an area I can only describe as the running away from a boulder level in a video game. <laughs> like, uh-huh. it's just the most tunnel a, like, valley has ever been. <laughs> uh, the minute they walked into it, I'm like, they're going to have to run away from something. <laughs> yeah. It's not oh, going to yeah. last long. Oh, yeah. As they pause, Driscoll spots fresh, ma- massive footprint of Kong. Uh, and Lumpy begins to tell the story of the abominable snowman before everyone kind of groans like, oh, hey, man, you don't know what movie we're watching. They want Carl to confirm if it's the same creature that he'd previously made weird eye contact with, but he's off filming and spots a bunch of massive dinosaurs. It's like Jurassic freaking park on this island. Carl rolls the film as Baxter heads into the shot towards the Apatosaurus and just sort of is like very afraid and worried. He's like, no, 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 they won't believe the shot's real unless we have a human in it. So you got to Baxter, keep going. (laughs) Just then all the dinos go heads up. Something has got them real nervous. And of course, it's a bunch of carnivores because where there's dinosaurs that eat leaves, there's going to be dinosaurs that eat dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan, so this part of the film did feel like it was pandering directly to me in some ways. There's something in it for everyone. Yeah, you know, you go and it's the reason I keep going back to them them Jurassic movies is like, I want to see some dinosaurs on screen. And once you know it, Skull Kong has been doing it this whole time. Um, oh, this is better dinosaur stuff than Jurassic World oh, Dominion, God, yeah. all three of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> the... Uh, Dinos head towards the filmmakers, Baxter running well ahead as he is uh, quite cowardly, but Carl remains staunch in filming. Uh, as the dinos get spooked, the boys in the canyon start to notice rubble falling, and immediately I'm like, stampeding. So it's, it's the Lion King of it all. They're gonna, we gotta run from some dinos. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big tunnel, there's some dinos, they're gonna run down it. Oh, there's more than the stampede. It's so much oh. more. <laughs> uh baxter catches up and they all start running uh save for driscoll hayes and jimmy who hang around just long enough to see carl and his equipment come around the bend followed by as predicted a bunch of stampeding dinosaurs it's a canyon run baby uh the raptors that are chasing the big dinos start to take some of them out which makes life tricky for the boys running and one such raptor notices that there are a bunch of little guys running around all these big guys and starts trying to eat people so Driscoll body checks one and it gets trampled, which was admittedly extremely cool. <laughs> it's You can't just have the stampede. There's got to be velociraptors running in the middle of it yeah. and they've got to be punching the velociraptors. We like, need yeah. Adrian Brody to body check a velociraptor in the middle of an active stampede. 
<laughs> Hell yeah. And no one's getting stepped on. Who's important? No, no, no. <laughs> there would definitely, there are some casualties of this event, but it is not a named character and uh, not till the very end. They reach the end of the canyon in a cliff, which one goon gets knocked out of and just Wilhelm screams out the wazoo in this moment. <laughs> There's probably like 10 Wilhelm screams in this movie. I'd yeah. Say. The run is not over, though, as they all round the bend, attempting not to get pushed off of the cliff. Baxter stops to shoot one of the raptors and in the process takes out one of the big dinos, resulting in a massive pileup of which only build characters could survive. Uh, And they're not out of it yet, as the raptors are still giving chase, even as the bigger dinosaurs have been knocked down. Uh, Herb hands Carl the camera when they are climbing up a cliff and tells him to leave him behind, getting pulled away and eaten by raptors. R.I.P. to cameraman Herb, uh, you are the named character who perishes in this scene. <laughs> there yes. is always one. It's just a question of which one is it going to be. I was just thinking, like Herb, don't sacrifice yourself. No, like you really not don't. For have Carl, to. don't do <laughs> no, that. It's not. What are you doing? Give him the fucking cameraman. <laughs> Herb was the real like dedicated artist in this movie the whole time, and we just couldn't see it. Like we were too blinded by Jack Black's performance to to see that the real auteur this whole time was cameraman. <laughs> oh, he was. Oh yeah, he would have made a great picture, great film, yeah. fantastic. I mean, following all the rules, thirds, all great stuff. Kong, meanwhile, deposits Anne on the ground, and she's not moving, so he nudges her a couple times to see if she'll get a reaction, and nada. Uh, And as he goes and sits somewhere else to eat some bamboo and rest, she rouses just long enough to let us know that she's alive. The men regroup. Four people are dead. The rest are just hanging on for dear life. Preston tells Carl what happened to Herb was no one's fault in particular, and he gives the exact same speech from when Mike the sound guy died about how we're gonna finish this film for him and i think that that's an absolutely incredible writing choice i have no notes on this decision i wish they had done it more frankly <laughs> yeah it's so good i mean it's it's when like it becomes funny like it it's mm-hmm. becomes very like intentional that like oh this he's going full villain villain mm-hmm. i mean he's been bad the whole movie but you, you don't know if they're gonna try to redeem him or something yeah he's not gonna have his like and now I will, you know, give my film up in order to save my friends moment. He's going to be pretty oh, committed no. to himself and his goals and nothing else. Baxter wants to return to the ship, but Driscoll calls him a coward, which doesn't seem to bug Baxter even a little bit, as we've seen no evidence to the contrary. And he's like, I'm no hero, and decides to dip. So him and some of the other crew head off to return to the ship. All of the other named characters stay to search for Anne. <laughs> I, you know, I really identify with Baxter in that scene. I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, man. I, you're going to lose like 20 more people. You know, I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not worth it. Anne seems like a real swell lady, but I like, I think all of us seem like real swell guys. So maybe, <laughs> maybe let's just There you dip. go. There you go. And meanwhile is trying to slowly army crawl away from Kong, finding a small side cave and trying to sneak out that way, only to be immediately stopped by the giant ape. Kong seems to be trying to communicate, and Anne does her kind of vaudeville falling down routine from her old comedy show, which draws his attention. Uh, and as she continues to act uh, the fool, the ape is occupied, enjoying the performance, and most importantly, really enjoying when she falls down. Um, this goes on for some time, Kong making expressions I assume are intended to communicate uh, feelings of enjoyment and humor. <laughs> There's Sometimes I feel like the uh, Kong... It, expressions were like very good and sometimes i'm like i can't read what this ape's face is trying to communicate to me right now i need like a hand movement or something (laughs) thrown in there 
that's i think that's what's so compelling about it though because like i love how in other kong movies sometimes they go more towards like the monster aspect Mm -hmm. and make him more human-like and this one i think what works so well is that it feels almost like the relationship between a woman and her dog or a woman and her horse you know and it that kind of relationship is way more it's easier to get behind you know and understand (laughs) than other depictions um and i thought like, this is my favorite scene in the whole movie. I thought, mm-hmm. like, Andy Serkis, like, and just seeing Kong laugh in that yeah. kind of... She's understanding, like, oh, he's he's like a, a just like a little guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he Yeah, he's a silly little guy. He's a silly little guy. He likes it when I do the falling down routine. This will backfire a little bit on her as she decides to not do the falling down part and Kong just starts, like, pushing her down over and over again. Uh, but finally having enough, she smacks his hand and yells, no. She's like, that's all there is. There isn't any more. <laughs> We're done with this. Uh, that's, that, that's me telling yeah. my dogs there's no more treats. And yeah. then they go <laughs> smash a bunch of boulders. Standing up to Kong makes Kong mad, but he doesn't hurt her. Just sort of wrecks some nearby buildings. Uh, a little bit of rubble hits him in the back and he mopes. Uh, which great ape moping in this moment. This makes Anne feel for the ape who swings away, leaving her with an opening to run. Uh, but they have that little little spark of connection is formed, a little something something. Maybe they are gonna get along after all. The men, meanwhile, are crossing a ravine near a cave when some bats fly out. Uh, this indicates to Hayes that they must proceed with caution and that he has to put every single like I am the next character who's gonna die flag on himself right now. It's like hey. I know it's been sort of like, who's it going to be next situation up till now. I'm going to let you all know right now that I'm going to make a big speech and then I'm going to go <laughs> immediately get thrown against a wall. <laughs> Hayes tells Jimmy that if anything happens, he's to run and then spouts dying mentor advice about bravery. Uh, he approaches the cave. There's the distant sound of roaring. Everyone starts to run back across the log over the ravine and Kong runs out and grabs Hayes. Uh, Hayes continues to demand that everyone run to the bitter end while keeping the girl's attention. They share knowing eye contact, and then Hayes is promptly, indignantly thrown against a wall for his troubles, and everyone else perilously attempts to cross the log. Anne hears this commotion and starts rushing towards the sound. Uh, sound travels incredibly far in this jungle. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> everyone hears every other encounter that the other group is having. <laughs> They're they're actually like ten feet away from each other at all times. It's mm-hmm. just like they're it's very disorienting. There's just so many know. ravines, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got so many different mm-hmm. layers of jungle. It's hard to know. <laughs> As the log shakes, Carl drops his camera and tries to reach it. Choi, who is a character in this, uh, falls and dies. Kong is knocks the log down, and all of them fall at various speeds into the ravine below. And meanwhile, finds herself face to face with like a Komodo dragon type lizard and backs away for it, uh, only to be immediately on the other side of a tree that she's got her back to. Classic. Her escape causes something to arrive and kill the lizard that she doesn't quite see. And while she's hiding under a log, some huge, terrifying centipedes fall on her. Uh, I too would run away from that log screaming. This was the most like visual part of the movie for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very very good giant bugs in this movie yeah. i don't think i've seen any and i was watching dial of destiny and there's some bugs oh. in that movie too and it's like nowhere near the the <laughs> creepiness in this yeah it's just next level the way the oh, perfect chattering sounds and everything mm. if you're in any if you have any fear of bugs this might not be the movie for you. or at least like a fast forward button might be a thing to write in this movie oh my gosh oh did we get to the um the scene on the water 
with the 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 fish in the water the massive fish oh yeah it's there's so many like animal-based chase sequences in this part of the movie i may have like skimmed over some of them but yeah there's a really well, I'm, cool i'm wondering because i think it was um cut for the theatrical version mm. so maybe yeah because like that scene is so unnecessary it, it it's like <laughs> just one more action scene it but they're yep. on the water and it's big fish and it's just like yeah i see why they cut that, that, yeah. that that's a good cut <laughs> yeah i think like I enjoy a lot of these chase scenes and animal encounters because there's a part of me that's like, ooh, dinosaurs, I like what's happening. Um, but I do think this is the part of the movie where I'm like, you could have cut a good like further half hour of these chase scenes and I don't think you would have lost too much of the story. Like as long as you leave the Kong yeah. parts relatively untouched, that yeah. dino stamp Or just took. combine them, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like rework them, something like that. Yeah. Have the dino stampede lead like right to the bridge and then have them go you know immediately into a con encounter or something um but speaking of <laughs> dinosaur encounters and finds herself face to face with a t-rex because it wasn't already jurassic park enough in here um she's running in yet another canyon from yet another dinosaur uh and falls seductively is <laughs> as the t-rex <laughs> looks for her lounging in the way that you only see on like romance novel covers <laughs> yes yeah um sort of playing dead-ish, and she escapes the notice of one T-Rex just long enough for a second larger T-Rex to wake up directly next to her and go to bite her on the cliff. I love that shot so where she's cool. laying there, and it's like, it looks like part of the cliff at first, and it's so slow, and I think what makes the action in this movie work so well, and I was thinking about like other action movies now, mm -hmm. and how it's just so noisy and so loud. There's a lot of, this movie's very loud, and there's a lot of noise, but there's just as much silence and mm. like really a lot of suspense. And you see that dinosaur and it starts to raise its head. And I love how the camera like tilts with the dinosaur's head and like crashes down near her. I love that. Love that yeah. scene. She screams and then Kong X Machina comes and saves her. Uh, the first original T-Rex rushes back in to bite the hand that holds Anne as Kong has scooped her up. But Kong takes the attack on the arm. He's protecting her. Uh, and he goes to climb and leave. But there's a third T-Rex. <laughs> I did lost it a little bit of the third T-Rex. I'm like, okay, the second one, amazing fake out. The third one, now we're getting, now we've gone too far. <laughs> I, per I don't think they went far enough. I think they should have, you know, done gone a little further. Maybe six, ten T-Rexes. I was going to say, like, how many T-Rexes do you think would have been the upper limit on how many T-Rexes they could have had in this scene? Because T-Rexes, I'm pretty sure, were solitary hunters, from my understanding of paleontology. So already we're introducing a whole new element to the T-Rex hierarchy. They must really be hungry. They must really need some food to be trying to get this one, one like, One of them was eating the Komodo meal. dragon. <laughs> Yeah, oh, it, yeah, it's eating the dragon. It it's this massive meal. <laughs> it makes no sense. But, drove, me fucking, you know. drove me crazy. Um, <laughs> but it, it does make for some very entertaining uh, big old fight action because they fight, fight, fight. Kong suplexes some dinos, gets bit a bunch, and eventually sends the Rexes falling into, you guessed it, it's another ravine. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And by sends them falling into a ravine, I mean that he also gets pulled in, drops Anne in some vines, and there's an incredibly comedic moment <laughs> where she is swinging in the vines, unable to stop the momentum, and a T-Rex, who is also caught in the vines, notices that she is swinging closer to it and closer to it each time, and just starts like opening its mouth like it's trying to snap her up as she swings closer um, to the T-Rex's mouth. 
there's no restraint like these scenes there's <laughs> it, it literally feels like peter jackson storyboarded these scenes when he was 12 and mm-hmm. he was like i need to keep it exactly how i pictured it when i was 12 <laughs> exactly that she is saved from the t-rex swing by kong of course um why do these dinos want to eat the littlest thing on this island so bad the plot uh and rides a t-rex very briefly which again like, like a 12 year old scripted it it's great um falls to the bottom of the ravine and you'll never guess it it's another canyon run as her and kong run from the t-rex for a little bit uh before they get too far kong and the t-rex do a little intimidation check on each other uh and Anne stands with kong uh like oh no i support this giant ape and uh as kong wrestles the rex into submission by submission of course i do mean death uh he roars victoriously and Anne is like okay i'm not gonna run this time Oh, that's so good. So good, yeah. Yeah, she's like, she approaches Kong, he turns his back on her and walks off all huffy, but she follows after and eventually is picked up and put on Kong's back to get a lift. Uh, They have reached a sort of, like, uneasy peace, as it were. Well, that whole moment when she, like, starts to step back towards Kong when he's facing down the T-Rex, it's, Mm -hmm. I love it, you know? I think it's, like, a great moment where it's, like, okay, it's totally flipped now. Like, she's on Kong's side, but it's also, like, I mean, what else are you going to do? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I love the the brutality of the scene of him killing Mm -hmm. that dinosaur. It's just so gleefully gross with him breaking the jaw and then playing with the dinosaurs. It's it's so ridiculous. I love it. (laughs) They're really pushing the limitations of what these exact standards of PG-13 were (laughs) from the uh, film rating org. Like, well, you didn't curse at all. So I guess this is fine. (laughs) Yeah, 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 totally fine. Waking up at the bottom of a different ravine, because again, this this jungle is nothing but layers and layers and layers of canyons and ravines. Uh, yeah. I mean, they should do Journey to the Center of the Earth next. I think it just goes straight down from yeah, that location. Yeah, I think that that movie just might technically be in the same universe as this one at this point. It, it, I, the Brendan Fraser one? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think they do share. Very similar. Weirdly similar, now that I think of yeah. it. Yeah. But Driscoll uh, wakes up at the bottom of their ravine and lights a flare to scatter some giant bugs and finds all of his compatriots, uh, Carl, somehow alive, Jimmy, who is emotionally devastated, and Lumpy, who again is alive and is mourning Choi, who apparently was his bestie this whole time. Carl finds his camera, but the film is all scattered apart. It's remarkably intact, but it is definitely not in the role, and there's definitely some damage on that film. Um, Absolutely insane. The... Flare goes out, and all around them, a bunch of just disgusting worms emerge. Giant, like, worms and wasps and all sorts and manner of bugs are one by one going to start appearing. Um, Lumpy tries to punch the ones that are trying to feed on Choi and is instead set upon by a giant wasp, which he is cleared of, but then besets Driscoll. Um, In case you are wondering which named character perishes in this scene, it's Lumpy. He goes down, gets eaten by a worm, trying to defend his uh, perished buddy. That scene still haunts me to this day. I mean, it is so... Like, just with him waving his sword, trying to... Like... Mm -hmm. and it's it's amazing because like the, it's all CGI and I feel like like it shouldn't work like it's but it's designed so well and the sound design and just like the weird silence it, there's like no music it's just like desperation and mm-hmm. it's so freaky it's it's really a, a like a messed up scene yeah 
No, they're really letting it, like, hey, Andy, um, you know how you've been playing this character who's sort of, like, there to do little jokes sometimes in between all of your um, ape uh, work? Do you want to, like, have an absolutely terrifying moment of peril and anguish and get eaten by a worm in this movie? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think I actually saw something, I think, where Andy Serkis talked about watching the movie with his kids. Oh, no. And... Um, <laughs> And or like his daughter or something, and they were really young. And he watched that scene, and he was like, "It's fake. It's okay. Like that. That'll fuck you up. Like watching yeah. that. Your dad getting destroyed." This does by feel a like a movie that you'll be watching with like your dad, and he would be like, "It's fine. I remember everything that happens in King Kong." And then you get to the middle third of the movie, and he's like, "Fast forward. Fast forward." Fast forward. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. lot. <laughs> Um, Carl has a little moment where you think maybe he's going to make a good choice uh, in which he chooses to fight instead of going for his camera. Uh, And with literally like the music in this scene is incredibly understated. Like it's not the big banging kind of action sounds you expect from this kind of peril. It's like a light ah as the crew is fighting this losing battle against the bugs. Um, Mm -hmm. Jimmy loads a gun and shoots all of the wasps off of Driscoll. Again, this is a moment where I'm like, so Jimmy's going to do something like dramatic and character driven, right? Like he had the whole thing with Hayes about, is he ready to wield a gun? Maybe he's going to accidentally shoot one of his friends or something. No, he just successfully gets all the wasps off very slowly from Driscoll and both of them are fine. <laughs> not even a problem. He's not even looking. His eyes are closed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what is what's going on? I kept Zero waiting for, for Jimmy, Jimmy to it's... have something going on other than being the kid who was reading Heart of Darkness, and there's just nothing. It's really a weird thing that that's just like dropped after. It's it's bizarre. Yeah. Hayes was really the like driving force of that character dynamic, and without him, Jimmy is kind of just the tag along kid in the worst sense of the word. Um, oh yeah. Everyone but Driscoll, Carl, and Jimmy are dead when spider crab looking things start to appear. All hope seems to be lost until Baxter and the captain appear and they start firing. The cavalry is here to save the day. At Kong's cave slash temple home, Kong and Anne are watching the sunset and juggles, which Kong yawns at, which is incredibly sassy of uh, King Kong. And so she just watches the sunset with him instead remarking on how beautiful it is and she repeats beautiful to kong while gesturing to her heart and kong holds out his hand which she gets in to sit in and they watch the sunset together sharing a peaceful moment for functionally the first time uh for both of them in the movie the men regroup with even more expendable no-name characters uh this captain is fucking hilarious <laughs> i cannot read his vibe but it it played comedically for some reason <laughs> The group notices that Driscoll has climbed up on the other side of the ravine from where they all are. He is still going to go and rescue Anne. He's like, I don't care that all of you want to go back to the safety of the ship and leave here immediately. I gotta go get my recent girlfriend. Carl believes in Driscoll and convinces the captain to use his boat full of chloroform to trap King Kong and capture him alive when Kong comes looking for Anne after Driscoll rescues her, plotting his own little scheme separate from Driscoll's own plan to rescue the girl. Yeah, he's very confident in that very convoluted plan of like, oh, he'll definitely not just immediately get smacked by king kong yeah. and he'll yeah it's he's like this writer <laughs> this oh, writer yeah. <laughs> can definitely handle alone the jungle that has killed like 16 people it's more like 200 people i feel like at this point i mean yeah. and then what it 
he really can't like this part of this part of the movie i was watching it going i don't really remember how he mm-hmm. rescues Anne, and then i watch it and i go well he really doesn't he just no. like just happens to he be sort lucky. of just like falls into victory in a weird and even then like doesn't really um this was we'll see kong is pretty capable of following them with little trouble and up until the very last moment Carl apologizes to Driscoll and then turns to leave with the captain. Meanwhile, Anne is napping on Kong's arm on the cliff as Driscoll sneaks up through some truly terrifying-looking bats. These, uh, I had to review Morbius for this podcast a while back, and that movie is pretty bat-heavy. These bats are doing so much more than literally anything in that movie could have ever dreamed of. (laughs) (laughs) Good bats. Great bats. bats. Really great, excellent, terrifying bats. Um... Past the skeleton of another Kong, it looks like. He's got another like oh, ape yeah. skeleton that he sneaks on past, which they don't do too much with in this movie. But I imagine that in in a world where they had not rebooted King Kong with Kong Skull Island and had instead used this as the basis for the, um oh God, what was it called? The like monster the cinematic Kong universe. The Kong cinematic universe. Yeah. Um, I could see how they would have maybe flashed back to this and been like, remember when we showed you that other Kong in that movie? How he's got backstory? <laughs> you all saw it. Yeah. <laughs> Driscoll reaches the sleeping ape and Anne and tries to whisper to her as she wakes up and spots him. And they reach for each other, but as their hands meet, Kong wakes up. And it's a really great shot of, like, Driscoll and Anne are directly in front of Kong's face. And you see the eye open. And it's like, oh, no. (laughs) It's too close. (laughs) Anne tells Driscoll to run, and Kong gives chase. Luckily, he is hassled by some of those freaky, freaky bats. uh, And eventually, Kong has to put Anne down. And she and Driscoll briefly reunite as they start to flee together, climbing down the cliff using a conveniently placed root as a rope um bats begin to hassle them as well and kong starts to pull them back up uh when driscoll just luckily happens to grab a nearby bat and they fly away leaving kong roaring in frustration behind them uh distant roaring that reaches even the gates uh, of the settlement where carl and the captain and crew await Driscoll and Anne uh, make a kind of hasty water landing of sorts as Kong is giving chase. And somehow, and we just sort of like, it's taken us 45 minutes to get to location X to location Y in this movie so far. They've been taking, presumably taking a roundabout route to the jungle. No time at all. They are back at the gates of (laughs) of Kong Skull Island. They're out of here. Oh, no, we're done. And thank God, too, because it's like we're not going to we don't want to walk all that way back as the audience. We're ready to get going. We've seen enough ravines. We don't need to go back. Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately for Driscoll and Anne, the gate is raised and they can't get across. Uh, They call to Carl to drop the bridge, but he has them. His people wait until the last possible second. Eventually, Preston is like, enough of this, and breaks the rope so that the bridge will drop for them, getting himself a nice little uh, scar on his cheek from the rope, smacking him in the face. Preston's redeeming moment right there. You all forgot that Preston was in this movie, didn't you? But no, no, no. (laughs) He's still here. Oh, no. And and he he shows up in New York, too, Mm -hmm. but uh, not Jimmy. Not Jimmy. Um, uh-uh, Wouldn't it have but, been great you know, for Jimmy to cut the rope? Maybe? I think that would have been good. Or, or Jimmy could have just been with Jack at, mm, in the theater, just yeah. a little cameo. Like, and but that scene when he's—that's such a good moment when Carl's like, "Wait, wait!" wait. Um, it's it's great villain moment. Yeah, 
Um, Kong catches up and leaps over the bridge, pounding into the wall. Everything slows down as Anne watches Carl and company use their massive amounts of chloroform and nets to try and capture Kong. She's very much against it at this exact second, uh, having now completed the chase sequence she's moved on to the beauty of the beauty and the beast portion of the king kong mythos and now she's like wait 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 we're buds actually you can't be doing this um she tries to stop them but everyone else is too determined even as driscoll and Anne object to this whole plan um Anne tries to resist as driscoll pulls her away and this makes kong rage even more and break through all of the nets keeping him down all the men are forced to flee back through the cave they originally entered the island from to the rowboats, the ape fast on their heels, and tries to return to the ape frequently, despite having just been rec- rescued like five minutes prior, uh, as Driscoll goes back to try and get Jimmy and Carl aboard. Jimmy, again, being a character here who's doing nothing but, but causing <laughs> issues. The crew row desperately, Kong getting closer and closer, kicking the boats with all of the named characters aside, including Carl, who has a little bottle of chloroform that he finds. The captain harpoons Kong's leg, which slows him long enough for Carl to smack him with a single bottle of the chloroform, just enough to knock him out. Uh, Kong reaches dramatically for Anne before passing out, and she is extremely upset by all of this, uh, not reaching back, but tearing up, which makes Kong very sad. It's brutal. It's so sad. Yeah. It's a sad moment. I was like, I feel like part of the film's pacing was doing it a disservice here in that it did a lot of great build up to like Anne and Kong's relationship. And then Driscoll shows up and they flee and it's like, oh, have they like regressed? Is she like, now I, now I have to like run for my life from Kong in addition to everything else. Uh, And then here it's sort of like, well, no, no, no. Let me go back. Let me, let me go back to him. I can chill him out. Uh, and I think that there is, right. like, a, a kernel of, like, a really great example of the relationship there, but I feel like the, the sequence of events being so close together in this one particular sequence did sort of, like, throw me a little bit. Right, right, yeah. And I feel like it's also her her being, like, this is a, an animal. Like, you're, you're, this is nature. You're mm-hmm. destroying nature. And um, also, like, you guys, this is really stupid. Like, you're just killing a bunch of more people here. Like, <laughs> yeah. King, he's still, like, kicking their asses and, like, throwing the ropes around and all that stuff. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like I a just, good I, plan I, from anyone's I, point of view. Do you know what I really needed from this movie? What? Was just one shot of them hauling King Kong onto their tiny yes! little boat. Yes! Yes! <laughs> I was like, what do, you mean? what do you mean we just hard cut away from the island? What are you talking about? That boat is so small. You had to throw everything overboard. I mean, what are you, what are you taking this thing? And like, granted, King Kong in this movie does seem smaller than in the original just by the make of like how yeah. the models are set up and like how the effects play out and the, everything. But still like compared to their boat, massive. Absolutely massive. <laughs> No, and is Carl like this is my monkey? Like he's my he's mine. Like uh, I I'm gonna get all the profits from this. Like it, it, how does that whole business uh, deal work out? How did they cut the profits there? Well, who who knows? But Carl declares the whole world deserves to see this ape, uh, and declares that he will be Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. And then we hard cut to months later, where exactly that title is up on a Broadway marquee. Crowds are gathering to see Anne offered to quote unquote the Beast. Anne, meanwhile, is in a dressing room where she is all dolled up for a show of sorts, seeming rather morose and out of it, as crowds stream into the theater. 
Carl is reveling in his success with all of the papers and reporters and investors and producers and who not. Uh, and the only person who's not proud of him is Preston, who knows what he has done and looks ominously from the balcony down at him. He's like the Phantom of the Opera right there. With his, he's got his scar and yeah. he's like all moody now. I like, I like New Preston. He should have I do too. been more like that. Yeah. New Preston seems like if they ever made like a direct sequel to this movie, they'd be like, and Preston's back, and now he's a main oh, character. Man. Preston spinoff series. Yeah. I'm ready for it. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the comedic actors at Driscoll's play are acting their little hearts out, but Anne is not in this comedy. Instead. Uh, Driscoll is sitting in the audience thinking back on all of their loving conversations, particularly the one where he wrote the comedy for her. She needed to read the subtext in it, and he never explicitly said, I love you to her. And the script of the stage play echoes the sentiment as the woman talking describes how he, her love interest never felt he'd need to say it, so he just let you walk away. And Driscoll, emotionally distraught over not being with Anne, rushes out of his own theater I think that scene works. I think it works pretty well, but it is also funny where he's like listening to a play that he wrote and he's yeah. like, damn, that's that's, that's deep. deep. Like I should listen to that play. It's that's like reading through writing. like your Twitter drafts and being like, man, I'm really on something. These days. <laughs> damn, I should listen to myself. Yeah, I actually really like this. Was, this is really like hitting, you know, like I'm, I'm on to something here. Um <laughs> At uh, Kong's show, the orchestra kicks up as Carl takes the stage and introduces the story of their adventure in pursuit of a savage beast, a beast who is no match for the charms of a simple girl from New York City. And meanwhile, is in her dressing room as the idea of the beauty and the beast line echoes over top of her. She looks ponderous. Carl then hypes up King Kong and reveals that the chained up ape in the back of his set, which looks defeated and very sad, um, Driscoll, meanwhile, is rushing over to the King Kong Theater. Carl demonstrates that he can touch the beast, which seems to be more Jack Black convincing himself that he can touch CGI Andy Circus than it is that Carl is convincing the audience that there's a real ape there. <laughs> I love the little jump he does yeah. when, when King Kong slightly moves. <laughs> Driscoll arrives just as they begin to crank up the gorilla a little bit. Uh, Carl then introduces their surprise guest, the one who hunted down the Mighty Kong, and then introduces Baxter, not Driscoll. It's all showmanship. <laughs> I love that. There's love a that. musical number reimagining of their encounter with the natives. Driscoll is then approached by Preston, who commiserates with him about Carl, who, <laughs> again, Preston gets to sort of like haunt this performance, I guess. <laughs> he turns his face and you see the, that little scarf. Yeah, and it's like, it's like not even from a monster. It's no. just like a rope hit you. It's from your like one really noble action that you took. <laughs> exactly it's also you're attending the premiere like, yeah i don't know i, I feel like he still is assistant yeah. yeah he's just bitter about it and just kind of salty carl is good at one thing destroying the things he loved and at the climax of the musical number Anne is offered up to the mighty kong uh Anne is strung up just like kong uh, as she was for her ritual now in the iconic white dress and presented to the ape who is excited by the prospect of seeing Anne. But when he looks upon the actress, it is not Anne, but instead a different blonde woman. And Kong becomes immediately annoyed and distressed. Driscoll, too, recognizes that that's not actually Anne. And Preston explains that Anne turned down the part in the show no matter how much money she was offered by Carl. Anne is instead back at the theater that Weston, way back in the beginning of the movie, had originally sent her to, doing sort of a backup dancing for what was not as racy a performance as I was necessarily expecting based on the outside of that theater. (laughs) 
Was it the same theater? I thought it was just a, a random. It like, was definitely the same exterior set. So I don't know if maybe they changed out the sign to make it a different one. But. Okay, yeah, because it seemed like a pretty classy. Like it looked yeah. like they were in above, uh, like a like a, mar- a musical all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she is also conveniently in the kind of iconic white dress that you would recognize from all of those images from the original King Kong movie of blonde woman being held by giant monkey on top of the empire state building i'll give you like one girl maybe you're gonna happen the next couple scenes uh, i wonder what's gonna happen ooh. uh and is uh the flash from the cameras continues to further distress kong who begins to break free of his restraints driscoll sees this and tries to get people to flee the theater but no one's listening as they think that the roaring is all part of the show and he's just trying to get their seats in the crowd uh kong eventually breaks through a restraint and everyone is like oh no 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 and starts to flee for real this time the so good. <laughs> the not Anne is scooped up by kong before being cast aside and kong breaks free and starts wreaking havoc in the theater he spots driscoll an old foe and begins to give chase through the mezzanine oh uh, i love that shot that <laughs> shot when like the crowd is gone and it's just driscoll and he just like turns and he like knows exactly where he is and, like mm-hmm. walks eyes like i fucking know you dude <laughs> <laughs> uh carl is just watching the show fall apart around him Kong breaks free of the theater into New York City, baby, and he's just wreaking havoc on Times Square, scooping up any blonde woman he sees looking for Anne, meaning that the only trace <laughs> that Kong... Them. Yeah, he's like, oh, I know Anne. She's the blonde one. There's like a moment very, very early on when Kong first picks up Anne uh, in the jungle where he like touches her hair a little bit, and you're like, okay, so he understands blonde. <laughs> he's got that yeah. locked in. Anne rushes out of her theater and sees a perfectly run over King Kong poster and the military rushing off towards Broadway and starts to run after them. Driscoll, meanwhile, calls a cab. The cabbie promptly gives him the cab uh, instead of following the ape himself. And so now he has his shiny yellow car to drive and he does some fancy driving to attract Kong's attention. And seeing that this works, uh, gives a Kong car chase through the streets of New York. Um, this is, I, I lived in New York for a few years. One thing movies love to do is to have car chases go under the L train where it goes above ground and there's that tunnel. They do it in every movie that's in New York. (laughs) It happened in Spider-Man. It happens here. They love, they love going under the L. Uh, (laughs) I'm also wondering, like, is, is he trying to like have less damage to the city because he's just like leading him through like the city and I feel like way more people are dying (laughs) because of this. I guess maybe he's not picking up miscellaneous blonde women anymore but I feel like you're not really doing that much like to negate the street level damage of Kong. Not helping much. No. 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 Uh, Kong eventually flips Driscoll's car which knocks him out but at that moment Anne catches up walking slowly and dramatically backlit very much uh, towards Kong in the middle of the street. They slowly approach each other and Anne holds the ape's hand and the ape very gently picks her up and walks off, going for a scenic route through Central Park. (laughs) They like ice skate a bit and they have this moment Uh of like laughing and bonding and skating around (laughs) in the middle of Kong's, you know, rampage through the streets of New York. Uh, (laughs) And as they sort of reach the like peak of uh, laughing and giggling and being carefree, the military shows up and fires on Kong, sending him plummeting. Uh, through the snow so he starts running off through the city driscoll comes to and gives chase alongside the military as kong begins to scale the empire state building kong pauses for a moment at the top of the building uh, to watch with Anne as the sun rises 
He pounds his chest lightly, right in the way she did when she said beautiful, and Anne gets the message, agreeing that the sunrise is indeed beautiful. And I really did like that little look through. I'm like, oh, that's like a nice indication of their bond that you can kind of like use as a touch point to go back to, because otherwise you are sort of relying on the acting coming through all of the ape animation and then also like Anne's ability to communicate what's going on. I think that that was a nice little like, just a good touch point for the audience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. After this peaceful moment, airplanes circle, fighter planes, here to shoot down Kong. I was so sure that Jimmy's been so unimportant. Maybe, maybe, with all of his, like, Hayes' references to the military and time passing, what if Jimmy had become a fighter pilot and it was him in one of those <laughs> I just kept waiting to see a close-up of this guy who is not in the movie anymore. <laughs> That's that'd actually be a really good but then again, that's like how much more are we adding to this movie? Yeah. Like we gotta get the shot of him going, Oh, I've gotta get on the plane and go fight King Kong. And he has to be the one to shoot him down. He you has know? to be, you know? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I yeah, I think that would have been good though. Yeah, if they cut some other stuff out. Just put Jimmy back in there somewhere. <laughs> Maybe you could show him just returning the book to the library that he stole. <laughs> Like, or maybe he could just be on the street back. when King Kong yeah. falls and gets crushed. You know, and that. it's just that's the end of Jimmy. Yeah. Um, but Peter Jackson is one of the gunners in the planes. He does his director cameo here. So I guess we didn't have room for old uh, Jimbo to make an appearance. <laughs> no. Yeah. Anne is sad knowing what's coming and is placed gently down on top of the Empire State Building. She tries to run to Kong, but can do naught but watch as the ape growls at the plane to begin their attack. Kong places her in relative safety and begins to climb the building. As the planes fire, Kong keeps climbing, eventually reaching the top and standing up and roaring. It's like the King Kong glory shot we were all waiting for. And never one to stay out of harm's way for long, for literally any reason, starts to climb a ladder as well, up top towards where King Kong is, as the planes continue their assault. Kong takes off the wing of one plane, but there's many more left. Uh, Driscoll, meanwhile, makes it to the Empire State Building, bursts past all of the security with incredible ease, takes an elevator right up to the top. Kong is struggling to hold on. Stray fire unhooks part of Anne's ladder and nearly sends her falling to her death, but Kong catches her and places her safely inside the further top of the building. I mean, as safe as she could be with the rain of gunfire still busting up the windows, but like... (laughs) I mean, I have to imagine Kong is getting kind of annoyed where he's just like, can yeah. you just like stay like in a safe place? Like I'm this always having to rescue from my, something. Like, death. This is my heroic death moment. I need you to just like sit down, stay out of harm's way. <laughs> if you die, it sort of just negates the whole thing, you know? Yeah, like just chill. I'll handle this. I'm trying to keep you safe. Right. Uh, can I just say the CGI holds up so well in this scene, especially like... And I feel like the colors, like it's sunrise and everything, like it's very pretty. Mm-hmm. But I feel like now they they wouldn't do it that way because like it, it'd be gray. It'd be like a yeah. gray, bleak afternoon and it'd like be washed out because I feel like people are afraid of things looking like CGI and like looking too beautiful or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like all of these action scenes have to be in like the sludge. Yeah. And... I miss when like CGI was a little earlier stages where they kind of just do crazy shit like this. And it just, 
it looks amazing. It looks so good. Yeah, I really appreciate that this movie never gave in to the, like, let's make the gray sludge impulse. Like, all of the different locations are visually very distinct. You can always, like, see the action pretty clearly, which is great because it's got some really fun over-the-top action in it. If you couldn't see that, it'd be incredibly disappointing. This scene in particular mm. would have been incredibly easy to be like, it's overcast in New York. It's dark. It's cloudy. Everything is like the lights are the only thing shining through. And instead, they went for this beautiful sunset shot. You can clearly see all the action still. And it's still as imp- impactful as it would have been if, you know, everything had been grayed out, like you said. So I, I completely agree. I'm, I was very pleasantly surprised this movie was not, in terms of color palette, as dark as it could have been. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I think it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Kong goes back to the top of the building, the tippy-tippy-top this time, uh, breaks more planes before pausing for a moment to rest on his injuries. Once more, he and Anne make weird eye contact before the ape turns away. Uh, Anne climbs yet another ladder, because this woman has never learned a lesson once in her life, uh, to the actual top of the Empire State Building as Kong stares down the remaining planes. King Kong roars and pounds his chest as Anne tries to yell to the pilot to stop, but it's no use, and Kong holds Anne in his big ol' hand one more time before putting her down and facing the music. Anne pets his ape face until Kong is riddled with bullets and passes away. Anne is sad, the ape falls off the building, and Anne stands up alone at the top until Driscoll makes his way up to the top roof of the building and calls to her. Anne steps forward to him and they hug, guess they're back together. Uh, On the ground, reporters clamor to get a shot of the now-dead ape. One reporter wonders out loud why Kong would climb up and get himself cornered like that, uh, leading Carl to eventually spot the ape and wax poetic about how it was beauty that killed the beast. The iconic King Kong line we all were waiting for, the final bit of the movie. Um, And then we go to credits. Wonderful. I I mean, I think it is like such a downer and like uh, it's so funny because I showed I've seen this movie so much and I I feel like most people are familiar with like King Kong, the story Mm -hmm. and like what happens and he's on the Empire State Building and he falls. But for some reason, my wife, Nadia, she totally unfamiliar, Mm -hmm. no idea what King Kong was even about. And I showed it to her and she doesn't know it's going to be tragic. She doesn't know he's going to go on top of the Empire State Building and she really enjoyed most of the movie, but she was so pissed at the ending. <laughs> she was so upset. And I felt really bad because she was like, she she hates when animals die in movies in the mm-hmm. first place. But she was like, how could they possibly let that happen at the ending? It's so sad. And it, it gave me new perspective on the line that Carl has at the end, um, which she was so angry when he said it he's like it was beauty killed the beast Mm -hmm. and she's like no it wasn't it was you (laughs) you know and um and i think that in one of the special features peter jackson said they wanted to give that line to faye because she was still alive at the time um but they realized like no it doesn't fit Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit for her to say it and i think it's because that is carl's line because it's a fucked up line Mm -hmm. like it's it's so ironic and um bitter and and stupid you know it's it's um goes against like the whole themes of the movie and i think the fact that we have the villain saying it and it's supposed to be this big moment that he gets the last line it's really sad and it's really like um tragic and Mm -hmm. that's why i think like this last time watching it i was like god it really is just like a fucking angry b movie that's just like it has a lot to say about filmmaking it's super meta and it is like 
Another line also that stuck out to me was Preston's line in the theater when he says, you know, Carl, what does he say? Love, never love something he could he didn't destroy or something. Yeah, everything he loves, he destroys, essentially. And I'm like, he, yeah, that's the director. That's the filmmaker. And I'm like, what does Peter Jackson feel about this? You know, mm-hmm. like this is his passion project. It's something he loves so much. He's trying to pay respect to the movie that like inspired him to make movies. But it's also like how how much can you really do that before like destroying it or even like people say that this like fucked up his career you know so i i mean who knows like it, it is kind of a very um it's a weird interesting movie yeah yeah i think you really like hit the nail on the head there with that like in many ways this movie is kind of trying to decide how it both remakes a rather dated film but stays true to kind of like the heart of it while moving on in ways from you know king kong famously uh, critiqued for potentially being representative of like racial intolerances at the time that's not the angle that this movie is taking on its giant ape and i think that that's the right choice but how do you reckon with that how do you move on from it uh i think this is as well of a step in the right direction as you can hope for with that um, and I think, you know, I, the idea of, well, I love this thing, but it's flawed, or I love this thing, I mean, I need to destroy it to remake it, um, kind of carries through in that meta way throughout. Uh, I do think it would have been, like, I think it's better that Carl is the character that says that final line. I, I love the idea of having mm-hmm. the original Anne Feyre come back in some form. I think she did pass away during filming, which was part of why she didn't get to do that final oh, line. Gotcha. Um, oh, but. Okay. Uh, yeah, like you said, like having the sort of full circle moment of the guy who kicked all of this off in a way, the one who really is responsible for every death in this movie, <laughs> including King Kong's being the one to accuse the pretty face of being the cause of it all um, is very uh, meta in a way. Yeah, and it's like it, it is weird because it's like he's very like seriously trying to reckon like you said with the original movie and the mm-hmm. the movie the themes and the subject and what the original movie is trying to say is so different from this mm-hmm. remake and it's almost like the fact that king kong was so humanized in the original was almost like accidental or mm-hmm. or, or almost just like a fact of how good the animation was and the, and the stop motion and like the creativity that went into that aspect that people were like loving kong and identifying with him and it's like i don't even know if they were even intending that you know it's just kind of happened and so seeing this kind of like uh revisionism is just so um i think it's moving like mm-hmm. I, I think this is just a very like i it's very close to my heart i love this movie very much but it's also um it yeah it has that like bite it has that edge and it's mm-hmm. it's very angry about a lot of things and i really um yeah i respect it for that yeah, I mean, we're getting into kind of the final thoughts section of this podcast a little bit, I guess, to throw it back to you. Do you have any sort of like overarching closing thoughts on this movie as a whole? Uh, is there maybe a situation you might recommend our, would you recommend our viewers watch this? And if they do, is there a situation to be good for? Um, yeah, we cover a broad spectrum of movies in this podcast, ranging from like direct to DVD toy tie-ins that are maybe good to make fun of or just not watch or... <laughs> you know, classics that are like a must-see, but you have to be in the right place. Is there anything about this movie that you, you kind of want to close the book on? Uh, yeah, I, I think that this movie should be seen by more people, first mm-hmm. off. I, I do think that people have the wrong idea about it, maybe, or they're a little dismissive of it because they think, oh, it's that long King Kong movie mm-hmm. and it's cheesy. And I think you have to try to meet it, meet it on its level. And it, it, I think also with time, it's becoming more of this 
outdated kind of brilliant example of a director being given full control over a huge, huge expensive studio project. Mm -hmm. And it feels like super expensive. Like it looks, everything about it is like this bloated epic. It's like, what if we turn this B movie, 1930s movie into Titanic, you know? (laughs) And um, I think it mostly works. And, you know, everyone's mileage will vary. Um, But I think that if you look deeply at it, I think it has a really complex stuff going on and it's, rewatchable and it's an example of a filmmaker who knows how to do action and um and yeah it's just one of those insane passion projects that i think people really need to need to watch yeah i mean something no one could say this movie does not understand how to do spectacle and like some of the action in this is truly incredibly impressive like as much as i felt like the three-hour runtime might have dragged a bit in the jungle i was still having a good time with like the sixth ravine that they encountered you know the action is just (laughs) that well constructed and the spectacle of this movie is just that over the top that there is a lot to really like there um i you could turn every time they run into a ravine into a drinking game if you wanted to oh so easily um but yeah like you're saying this is a really kind of rare example of sort of this dying case study of giving a director full reign over this you know studio property with just a big budget and letting them go wild uh as long as movies have gotten i think the art of making like the epic is not as alive as it may have been like 20 years ago um there's Mm -hmm. something to be said for this is its own thing you know we i joked about well if there was a sequel it'd be this but really this movie is its own self-contained thing it's this epic story Mm. brought to screen kind of taking like you said the b movie making it bigger um and that art of making the huge movie the the blockbuster that goes beyond almost um isn't something you get every day anymore uh and so for that merit alone it's it's worth the watch uh if you've got Get three and a half hours to set aside, you know. Next time you're going to watch one of the Lord of the Rings extended editions, just mix in Kong, King Kong in the middle there. And just forget back. about the Hobbit movies. Just like <laughs> yeah. it's King Kong, it's Lord of the Rings, you're good, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Jake, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me today. Uh, if our listeners want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Uh, Man Carrying Thing, the YouTube channel. I am on there doing stupid shit and um that's pretty much it yeah thank you so much for having me this was really fun i'm, I'm happy i got to share one of my favorite movies with someone <laughs> new so thank you hell yeah that's the that's what that's why we do what we do on this show it's <laughs> free for all baby uh yeah but this was seriously so fun i had a blast uh definitely go check out man carrying thing on youtube all of that will be linked in the uh description and the show notes below so you can check all of that out um I'm off to investigate a mysterious, uh, as of yet undiscovered island with a captain whose vibes are unknowable. Uh, But we will be back next episode with another movie. So until then, uh, thanks for listening and have a great rest of all y'all's days. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Movie Struck. We'll be back on July 31st with another thrilling installment, but if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for the podcast before then, feel free to email us at moviestruckpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform, and if you really enjoyed the show, consider becoming a patron or checking out the Moviestruck Discord server for even more great benefits and a really cool community. Speaking of that community, I'd like to give a special shout out to the members who joined us in June. Thank you to new patrons Canis, Jim8333, Taylor Wagner, and Connor Crozier. 
It's thanks to you guys and all the folks over on Patreon that I'm able to keep the lights on on the show and help ke- keep Ziggy in the good cat food. Which, speaking of, she's demanding, so I'll be off until the next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>